Welcome to Crime on Caffeine. I'm your host, Erica. And I'm your host, Allison. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode. Today, we'd be sipping on a repeater coffee again because they were having a great sale on Amazon. This is the Bones Coffee. We had this during October, I believe, but Mm -hmm. they have like all of their flavors on Amazon. So I figured fast, efficient. There's so many. I wasn't expecting this many and they sound really good, all of them. Yeah, Erica ordered the Cookies and Dreams because, you know, that girl be sipping on all sorts of flavored coffees. And I went with, you know, a super bold choice and I got the medium roast. (laughs) Shocker. I know. But I mean, the other flavors do sound really good. Did you put um, peppermint mocha in it? No, I don't have any peppermint mocha right now. I just have my oatmeal cookie one. Oh, that sounds so good. It's kind of like mine. What is yours? Oh, cookies and dreams. Okay. I'm like, what do you mean? What? You-? Yeah, but they have so many flavors and I really want to try more. So um, if you guys want to sponsor us. So Bones Coffee, if you want to just hit our line, DM us, email us, you know where we at. We love your coffee and we are going to continue drinking it. There's just so many flavors to be had. So the only true crime news I know we have is that it was released what Brian Laundrie's cause of death was. Um, I'm sure everybody knows at this point, but Brian Laundrie's cause of death was ruled a suicide because it was a gunshot wound to the head. Mm. Interesting. I'm interested because I saw one of the attorneys involved was talking about whether or not other people are going to be charged. So I'm curious to see what happens with his parents or like what they have to say. Yeah, so that case is still ongoing, still very interesting, still things just getting dug up left and right. So that's our latest update with that. I have a I have a Cassidy Rainwater update. <laughs> yes. That's the girl that was kept in the cage by those two men and then they were arrested for kidnapping and then the police went to their house and detonated a bomb. There are new charges against both men, James Phelps and Timothy Norton. Originally in September, they were charged with first-degree kidnapping, facilitating a felony, inflicting injury, and terrorizing. But this Wednesday, new charges filed against them, which are first-degree murder and abandonment of a corpse. But they still face those like kidnapping charges and everything from before. And I think they have their preliminary hearing starts on February 2nd. But yeah, so we'll let you know as more comes out about that case, because I know that rumors have been going around the internet like crazy about this. And like the cops said, no, that's true. But I'm really interested to hear what the hell happened. Love that. Well, that was a good update. Glad that we had some coverage on the true crime news front. We hope you all had a very wonderful Thanksgiving. Thank you guys so much for still listening the day before Thanksgiving. True fans out there, we love you all. And if you'd like to continue to keep listening to us, you know where to find us. Erica, let them know. We're on every streaming service ever created. And we're on Instagram, Twitter, at Crime on Caffeine, Facebook. You can go to CrimeOnCaffeine.com. You can request a case, you can listen, you can read, you can donate coffee. And that is that. So today I 
didn't tell Erica what my case is, so she can get a little taste of her own medicine here. But she knows every true crime case ever, so I'm sure she'll have heard of this. But I wanted to preface this because I actually was recommended this case way back in August when I did the Gainesville Ripper. Why, you might be asking. Because the Gainesville Ripper was the case that based for the movie Scream. This case was because of the movie Scream. Do you know what it is yet? Oh my God, you talked about it. This is the case of Cassie Jo Stoddard. Oh my God, AKA the Scream Murders. The movie Scream inspired these two idiot boys we are about to talk about. Are you ready? Yes. Cassie was born in Pocatello, Idaho in December of 1989. She and her siblings were raised by her grandparents for a while when they were younger. She was described as being artistic and had a love for music. Cassie was known to family and friends as a responsible straight-A student, and the sheriff that was responsible for her case later said she didn't do anything but attend school. She didn't do anything but be friends with somebody else and just about everybody. So this girl was very outgoing, loved people, straight-A student, responsible, artistic, love of music. She was a great girl. On September 22, 2006, 16-year-old Cassie Jo Stoddart was house-sitting for her aunt and uncle on Whispering Cliffs Drive in Bannock County, which was just a few miles away from her own residence in Pocatello, Idaho. That night, Cassie invited her boyfriend, Matt Beckham, over to her aunt and uncle's house to keep her company. Matt then invited his friends, Tori Adamchek, who brought along his friend, Brian Draper. They decided to all watch a movie together. Some sources are saying that that movie was Kill Bill, Volume 2. Fitting. Matt's friends, Tori and Brian, only spent about two hours at the house before leaving, but what Cassie didn't know was that Brian Draper had unlocked the basement door so that he and Tori could sneak back in later the same evening. When the two boys returned, they parked down the street, put on dark clothes, gloves, and pretty weird-looking white masks. Then they snuck back into the home through the basement door while Matt and Cassie watched TV in the living room. About 15 minutes later, Brian Draper and Tori Adamchek proceeded to make loud noises in the effort to kind of lure Matt and Cassie down to the basement to scare them. They said it was scary movie style. Ah. But when that didn't work, they decided to turn off all the power in the house. Cassie was pretty scared at this point from all the noises and now the power going out. And Matt said later that one of the dogs kept staring down at the basement stairs, barking and growling, but it seemed like nothing was really going on, so he didn't make any mess about it. At around 10.30 p.m., Matt's mother came to pick him up, leaving Cassie at the house alone. On his way home, Matt called Tori to see where he was because he thought, like, okay, him and Brian went to go watch a movie. Maybe I'll meet up with them later. But when Matt was on the phone with Tori, he said that he was speaking in a very low whisper, but he brushed it off and assumed that they meant that they were already at the theater watching the movie. Of course, they were still in the basement below Cassie. So for the second time, the boys turned off all the lights in the house by flipping the breaker, and they waited, hoping Cassie would come downstairs to turn the lights back on. When she didn't, they took matters into their own hands, and they headed upstairs. These little shits 
for keeping a list. They literally had a list called a death list. The list contained names of several of their friends and classmates, one of them being Cassie Joe Stoddart. Yes, friends and classmates. Why your friends? Sis, don't get me started with these two. <laughs> Brian Draper had a dagger-style weapon with him, and Tori Adamchick had a hunting-type-style knife with him. Brian opened and slammed a closet door trying to scare Cassie, but she was sleeping on the couch and it didn't frighten her. After this failed attempt to frighten her, they just attacked her. They stabbed her approximately 30 times, 12 of which were fatal. Jeez, psychos. I know. The forensic pathologist, Dr. Charles Garrison, later testified that most of the fatal wounds struck the right ventricle of Cassie's heart. Dr. Scamal determined that the cause of Cassie's death was stab wounds to the trunk. In all, Dr. Scamal documented 30 knife-related wounds on her body, 12 of which were fatal, as I just stated. The state also had forensic pathologist Dr. Charles Garrison examine her body. He said, In my opinion, there were at least two knives used, one of which was non-serrated blade and one of which was a serrated blade. In general, the majority of the potentially fatal wounds that Dr. Scamal listed were inflicted with the serrated blade. However, there was one wound that struck the right ventricle of her heart that had no serrated blade. So they're saying that 11 out of the 12 fatal stab wounds came from one of the knives. Wait, say that again. How many? So she was stabbed 30 times. 12 of them were fatal. 11 of the 12 came from one of the knives, and one of the 12 came from the other knife. Okay, whose knife? <laughs> Whoever had the um, the serrated blade one, that was the one that had the 11. Which was who? Well, Brian had a dagger, and Tori had a hunting knife, but I don't really know what those kind of weapons look like. I'm not a big knife expert, so I would assume that a hunting knife would be a serrated blade. So I'm going to say it was Tori, but don't quote me on it. The boys left her body to bleed out and they fled. The following day, Matt Beckham and Tori met up while Matt repeatedly tried to call Cassie's phone. The next day, her body was recovered, which was two days after her actual murder. So on September 24th, which was a Sunday. When the Contreras family returned home, Cassie's 13-year-old cousin was the first person to find her body. During the investigation, authorities relocated Allison and Frank Contreras, which were her aunt and uncle, as well as their three children. The responding officers noted that Cassie's body was covered in blood and just riddled with deep lacerations and stab wounds. It didn't take long for the investigators to determine that Tori Adamchek and Brian Draper were the last people to see Cassie Joe alive, the Pocatello police spoke to both of them after interviewing Matt Beckham, who told authorities the pair of 16-year-old boys was at the Contreras' house the night of the murder. Tori Adamchek was interrogated the same day, and he initially told detectives that he and Brian had gone to the house at 8.30 to attend a party. But when the party never materialized, he and Brian left the house to catch a film, after which both boys slept at Tori's house. But when the detectives asked questions about the movie that they had reportedly seen that night, he couldn't remember anything about it. Just the name of the movie, but nothing else. No plot line, no characters, knew, knew nothing. So he lied. 
Two days later, with consent, of course, investigators searched Brian Draper's room and found an empty knife sheath. And the next day, which would have been three days later, Brian Draper led law enforcement and his father to all of the evidence he buried in the Black Rock Canyon area. It's quite a lengthy list, but I will let you know now the evidence that they found. Stick matches, a pair of black boots, a pair of blue rubber gloves, a pair of Athletic Works brand fingerless gloves. First of all, like, why are you wearing fingerless gloves? (laughs) You're just trying to put your fingerprints on everything? Yeah, what? So weird. A melted brown hydrogen peroxide bottle, a multicolored mask, a large dagger-type knife with a sheath, a silver and black-handled knife with the signature of Sloan written on the inside, a small dagger-type knife with a sheath, a Sony videotape. This is the videotape that we are about to talk about a lot because this is like a big, big part of this case. A black-handled serrated folding knife. Later, they tested it for DNA, and it did have Cassie's blood on it. A red and white mask. Later, the DNA tested that there was partial DNA from Tori on that mask. A single black glove that had partial DNA from an unknown male. pair of partially burned black Puma brand gloves. Why are there so many gloves? Anyway, that was later tested, revealing that that had Cassie's blood, and it was just, like, soaked with it. Blue plastic garbage bag, a partially burned black long sleeve shirt, a Calvin Klein black dress shirt. Later, the DNA showed that it had Cassie's blood on it. And there was a white and gray sock and a small piece of black cord. And that is everything that was buried. It just seems so easy. (laughs) I mean... There was three people there that night, and Matt was like, ain't me, so. But we're about to see why it was so easy, because the Sony videotape that I just talked about literally had footage of them reacting to have killed her. So stupid. (laughs) Yes. That's so funny. I mean, not funny, but like, come on. It's dumb. It's just dumb. I'll put a few quotes of things that they said in this video, this home video that they made. I will have the actual video on our website. But, like, just a few things that they said. Brian said, Just killed Cassie. We just left her house. This is not a fucking joke. And then Tori said, I'm shaking. And Brian said, I stabbed her in her throat and I saw her lifeless body. It just disappeared. Dude, I just killed Cassie. I have no words. I'm trying to understand. Not understand, but, like, piece together, like, what's wrong with them. A lot. There's a lot wrong with them. They even filmed her at school four days before the murder to get footage of their chosen victim before they carried out the murder. They had on camera one boy jokingly saying, She's going to be alone in a big dark house. How perfect can you get? I mean, like, holy shit. And then the other guy said, I'm horny just thinking about it. Ew. Yeah. Yeah, I know. So the transcript of the tape wasn't released until much later in 2017, but it was a very clear indication of how just idiotic these two were and that Brian also explained how they were going to make history, they were going to become notorious serial killers. And on September 21st, they even, which was a few days before the murder, they were on tape recording themselves saying, we're going to be just as big, just like Scream, except for real life terms. 
Oh, my God. Yeah. They referenced serial killers like the Hillside Strangler, the Zodiac Killer, Ted Bundy. They also mentioned being inspired by Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold. I was I was going to bring up that's what that reminds me of. Yeah, these they, two. The Columbine Shooters. And then they obviously mentioned the horror film Scream because the whole film's about teenagers who killed a mutual friend. So... Tori even says in the tapes, these people were amateurs to what we're going to be. And Brian tells Tori that they're going to make history. Yep. It sounds exactly like the Columbine killers. I know. (gasps) I I don't understand it. They even had tried to kill eight or nine other people as well, according to another ISJ article. But the opportunities to get the people alone never really came to fruition. So that never happened. But in the tape we've been discussing, Brian said, I feel like I want to kill somebody. Ugh, I know it's not normal, but what the hell? Nope, definitely not normal. No, sir, not normal, but what the hell? Yeah, let me just go do that. No. While there are other cases out there where teenagers killed their friends, the motives for these murders kind of vary. Often there's really no apparent reason that these killer kids turn on their friends. But in other instances, teenagers kill out of jealousy or bigotry, kind of like the murder of Shonda Scherer. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. Stop. You keep bringing up the cases that I'm about to call out. Yeah. Well, allegedly, Brian and Tori killed Cassie Joe to obtain fame and notoriety. What a reason. According to a Medium article, Matt was initially a suspect in Cassie's murder because he had been the last person to see her alive, and the police found it really suspicious that he didn't show any emotion when he found out about his girlfriend being dead. He ended up taking and passing a polygraph test, but the article goes on and on to say he spent the following day with Tori and tried to call Cassie. Turns out that he actually really wanted to spend the night with Cassie, and she told him that she felt really scared and wanted him to stay over to protect her, but his mother said no. The weird thing is, is that his mom said no, but she invited Cassie to sleep over at their house, so she did have an option to leave, but she declined because she reportedly said that she didn't feel like it was right to leave her family member's house since they trusted her to look over it and their pets. She thought she was doing the right thing by staying and not going to Matt's house to sleep over. On April 17, 2007, Brian Draper was found guilty of first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder. Cassie's grandfather, Paul Cisneros, said, One down, one more to go. Hell yeah, Grandpa. Hell yeah. And her mother, Anna Stoddart, said, I'm just happy that my baby has got her justice. Now it was time for Tori Adamchik's trial began on May 31st, 2007. He was convicted of the same charges on June 8th, 2007. So just like a month later, less than, oh my God, way less than (laughs) May 31st, June 8th. So like a week later. (laughs) Okay. Okay, Allison, very smart. In September of 2010, an appeal was filed on behalf of Tori and one for Brian in April of 2011. Their initial appeals were denied, but their attorneys filed an appeal again with the U.S. Supreme Court, citing there was a lack of information concerning the way a minor's brain develops. So, his public defender, Molly Husky, said that his sentence was 
unconstitutionally cruel and that he was immature and had poor judgment at the time of the murder. Oh, Molly. Um, so they had psychologist Dr. Mark Corgiat testify at Tory's sentencing. He testified that adolescent brains are not fully developed, which usually takes males until their mid-20s, and that the average adolescent, quote, possesses less than adult capabilities in planning, reasoning, and judgment. He said that Tory was immature even for his age. He, quote, demonstrated a pattern of neurocognitive difficulties that indicated less than age-appropriate judgment, impulse control, and complex problem-solving abilities, end quote. He also presented his history of ADHD and Tory's individual education plan for school as tending to demonstrate frontal lobe immaturity. I'm going to tell you about these lobes in these people. Hell yes. My favorite part. Well, I just feel like every case we talk about lately, we got some lobe issues going on. Well, because these are literal psychopaths. Like, you can tell they definitely have some lobe issues going on. It's not just, like, some daddy issues or His lobe whatever. His fell out. Literally, the thalamus was falling out. The frontal lobe's falling out. We ain't got no lobes. Not a one. People need to find some lobes. In 2010, the Stoddart family filed a civil lawsuit against Idaho School District. They claimed that the school was negligent and should have known that Brian and Tori posted a threat to others. Both the civil court and the state Supreme Court dismissed the case, saying that the actions of the killers were not feasible. In 2016, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled it unconstitutional for a minor to receive a sentence of life without parole, no matter what the crime they committed. However, in 2017, the Idaho Supreme Court ruled to uphold Tory's fixed 30-year conviction and both of the teen sentences. Brian and Tory are in Idaho State Correctional Institution, and that's where they don't have been, and that's where they don't been stayed. The Contreras family, which is Cassie's aunt and uncle, have put their house on the market every year since Cassie was murdered. But they are still unable to sell the property, and Frank Contreras told the Idaho State Journal, We just want out. We just want to walk, but there is a stigma on the house. The murder devastated the Pocatello community, including the Contreras family. Her uncle Frank reported he turned to alcohol to cope with the tragedy. Others, like Tori's mother, wrote a book about the crime. Why, why is the killer's mother writing a book? For all that being said, I did want to mention the topic of violent media consumption and how it can fuel real-life violence, so to speak. Um, I've read multiple articles on this because the new Scream movie is set to release in January. So I figured, you know, now is a good time to bring this case up since next month, the new Scream movie is going to come out. There's, you know, the age-old question of filmmakers saying that the slasher genre kind of invoke real-life violence. They talked about this with um, Polly Class, and they talked about it with, um, what's her name, too? What's her name? Jennifer's Body. Elise Pollard. Elise Pollard. They talked about it with that, too, with, like, the bands, how their music right. was, like, violent. And I know that 
obviously a lot more people get ideas from movies these days. At least it seems that way. But I, I don't know. I can't say that it's a a film genre's fault that these things are happening. And some people like to do that. Um, No, a hundred percent. If the person wasn't a psychopath in the first place, like it wouldn't us watching those movies doesn't make us go and do that shit. Right. Yeah. It just poses the, you know, notorious copycat murderings. So this would be considered a copycat of the scream murders. Scream and the Cassie Joe Stoddard case share, you know, a number of parallels, including clothing. They had black outfits, gloves, and the white face mask, which any Scream fan would know is a very recognizable trademark of the franchise, the ghost face killer. I don't know. These boys just wanted to be serial killers, so it'd be silly for me not to bring that up. The whole copycat murders situation. No, that's a really interesting argument and i mean we're obviously on the same page those kids were psychopaths regardless like even if they didn't watch those types of movies they they would have killed someone anyway just by judging by how they reacted to her death absolutely exactly which brings me to psychology so the first thing i want to go over would be obviously what is a copycat crime It's a criminal act that is modeled after or inspired by a previous crime that had been reported in the media or published in fiction, a.k.a. a movie. Few copycat crimes are exact replicas of the event that inspired them. Instead, the imitator lifts and copies certain elements, such as the motivation, the technique, the setting of the original crime. So you could say that the outfits that they chose and the not the motive, but probably like more of like an MO, it being a high school mutual friend of theirs. Like I, I talked about that earlier. While most copycat crimes occur within two years of the initial incident, a crime can occur any number of years after an original crime. This, however, does not really go with that because Scream was released in 1996 and this was in 2006. So it is 10 years, maybe like a little 10-year tribute that they were trying to do. I don't know. They're fucked up. Anyway, moving on. The other thing I wanted to talk about psychological wise would be that these boys wanted to be serial killers. So it'd be silly for me to not go over the psychology of serial killers. The most consistent psychological feature among serial killers appears to be extreme antisocial behavior. They tend to lack empathy, appear incapable of remorse, show no regard for laws or social norms, and they have a strong desire to revenge themselves against individuals or society at large by carrying out violent, terrifying crimes. Features that are common with serial killers are they're white males. Their offenses occur when they are in their 20s and 40s, so that doesn't really account to this one. They often appear intelligent. Mm -hmm. Intelligent, (laughs) you say. I don't think these boys are that smart. Although their attorneys would say they just haven't been fully developed, you know. They weren't there yet. They could have been so smart one day, you know. No. Another commonality would be that some can be considered a loner to those around them, while others can be married or in long-term relationships. 
Studies have shown that more than half of serial killers have a past criminal history, and there appears to be a common association between serial killing, burglary, and rape. Thank God there is no rape in this case that we need to talk about, but they did technically break into that house, so burglary. There are also similarities when it comes to choice of victim. Victims are predominantly a young adult female of the same race. That makes sense. It's more common for you to be a victim at the hands of someone you know. However, it does not apply to serial killers. Serial sexual murders are twice as likely to involve strangers than someone you know, which is a fun little stat, which is not that fun. I don't know why I called it fun. It's a stat. Not not fun. Not a fun stat. Don't, (laughs) Don't think it's fun. It's just a stat. A serial killer selects victims based on three things, which is availability, vulnerability, and desirability. So those are just a few of the things that profilers take into consideration when they're looking at serial killers. They kind of have built this template of sorts. The other thing I wanted to talk about, so we have copycat murders, serial killers, and now I want to talk a little bit about narcissism. Because if you couldn't tell, people who want fame and notoriety out of murdering, you know, we might consider those people narcissists. There are definitely other ways, but it's fine. There are a ton of other ways to try to get famous. Maybe don't kill people. Anyway, so according to DSM-5, in order to be diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder, a person must display at least five of the established traits of narcissism. The nine traits of narcissism include, which the first one is like a dead giveaway of these boys, grandiose sense of (laughs) self-importance, sense of entitlement, preoccupation with fantasies of unlimited success, power, brilliance, beauty, or ideal love, belief they are special and unique and can only be understood by or should associate with other special or high-status people or institutions, Need for excessive admiration, interpersonality exploitative behavior, lack of empathy, envy of others or belief that others are envious of them, demonstration of arrogant and haughty behaviors or attitudes. So I'm going to go ahead and point out one, two, three, four, five. Hey, they've got five. Look at them. They needed at least five. Not trying to diagnose anyone, but... No, no, not trying to diagnose anybody. But if I was, (laughs) I would go ahead and just... I'd I'd put some money on it. I don't have much, but I'd put some money that they're narcissists. (laughs) So not all narcissists become killers, but there is a growing body of evidence that suggests that many killers, particularly serial killers, exhibit many of these narcissistic personality traits. A killer that you might know that is on the list of people that is also a narcissist and kind of also goes with the whole wanting fame and notoriety. We just talked about him. Can you guess what I'm going to say? BTK? Yes. Oh, nice. Ding, ding, ding. You're going to get me worm. <laughs> the article, I pulled this quote out because I just thought this was the best article quote ever. It just says, No one loves a serial killer more than a serial killer. (laughs) 
They are known for, obviously, inflated ego and delusions of grandeur. They are often a living example of someone who abuses any and all power they are given. So no matter how much, how small the attention is, they just eat that shit up. But yeah, that's all I wrote. So crazy. It reminds me of so many cases, which is really sad how, like, to the book they are. I know. Yeah, like how BTK wrote all those notes and, like, wanted everybody to find out who it was. These boys videotaped themselves (laughs) saying everything they were doing. Fingerless gloves. Fingerless gloves. Reading the transcript of the video, which I just watched the video because I'm not going to read all that. But I watched the video. These boys... First of all, it's kind of eerie, honestly, because you know that they actually did kill somebody and just the lack of... They said empathy, emotion. Not even empathy, just any emotion, really. They're just like, oh, yeah, this is what we want to do. This is what we're going to do, and here we are. I just couldn't believe, like, even after they had murdered her, they still were like, oh, my God, I fucking did it. Yeah. But, yeah, that is the case of Cassie Jo Stoddard. Love that you did both of these. I wanted to make it a full circle situation. Well done. So well done. I've done the case that inspired Scream, and I did a case inspired by Scream. So I'm going to, you know, not talk about Scream anymore. (laughs) No, but you should do other cases that were inspired by movies. Were you shocked? Did you know all that stuff? I did not. That's what I was aiming for. Winner. See, isn't it more fun when we don't tell each other the case? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I'm not going to tell you anything anymore. Okay, deal. I'm going to leave you on red. I'm not going to share any more TikToks with you. Except the one that I shared, the article that I sent you today. I, I, you can I do, really that do that one. <laughs> Guys, that one is just like pure stupidity. It's perfect. It's it. perfect for our show. Perfect. But also, how dare you say you're not going to share TikToks with me anymore? Well, because, like, I don't want you to know what I'm doing. My next case, I saw a TikTok on it. But what about funny TikToks? Well, no, like, I'll still do that. Oh, thank God. thought I was getting all of my TikTok revoked from you. No. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. If you want to be notified when we have new episodes coming out, we have them coming out every Wednesday. But go ahead and follow us on Spotify and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It's my favorite. When I wake up on Wednesday mornings, I get the notification like I didn't just schedule it the night before. (laughs) I'm like, oh, look, a surprise for me. No, but it is really fun when you wake up to your notification of a new Crime on Caffeine episode every Wednesday. It's like it should be part of your morning routine. It's part of mine. It's part of Nate's. It's part of ours, too, in this household. Well, not Max's, but... <laughs> he gets, like, an exception. He, we he understand. We, we be sipping, and he's like, well, that was enough for me today. <laughs> Great job. You guys did so good. Except for he already knows what we be sipping, because I get so much coffee delivered to this house. Yes, and if you guys want to support the show, you can go ahead and buy us a coffee by going onto our website, crimeoncaffeine.com. It'll pop up right away. Or you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash crimeoncaffeine. Or just go to our Instagram at crimeoncaffeine. Link is in the bio. Yes, follow us, my friends. We want to be your friends. Oh, and we have some news. <gasps> yes. So tell the holidays are coming up. 
and we're really close to hitting 10,000 subscribers. Mm-hmm. So as a thank you for 10K, we wanted to do a little giveaway. So once we hit 10K, all you guys have to do is share like the links to our episodes or the links to any of like our Instagram posts on your Instagram story, <laughs> tag us, and you'll be entered to win a Crime on Caffeine giveaway. Yeah, it's going to be a surprise. So keep listening. Keep telling your friends. Keep telling your family. Keep telling your baristas. Keep telling your uh, FedEx delivery guys, whoever you want to tell. Yeah, and any shares in the month of December count as like an entry. Yes. I'm excited. I'm excited. And I'm excited. So thank you guys so much for listening. And we will catch you on the next one.